And I get off, and I'm kind of looking around and, and walking through the train station, and slowly the, the last taxi leaves. It was a little bit out of town, and I'm looking around. It's getting dark and cold, and I'm the only one left, me and a couple of drunk Germans. And I'm stuck, and I don't know what to, what to do, and I don't know who will help me. I ended up spending that night in a telephone booth, a plastic uh, square, uh, whatever, you guys, you'll learn. Um, many of you don't know what those are. Um, when, we, when we get to this position of what do I do and who will help me, I think we're getting to be in the place of the least of these. By no means was I the least of these. I spent a cold night outside. Um, I, it was fine. I survived. Uh, but it gave me a small taste of what it means to be uh, the least of these. I got this idea of, of what to do, what, what do I do and who will help me by a, by a quote uh, by a guy named Sam Wells, an Anglican priest. He was overseeing a, uh, what I picture as a deprived kind of housing complex. And all of a sudden, this housing complex received a significant influx of government money. And while he was reflecting on this, he, he had this quote. I learned that, what I learned is that poverty is not primarily about money. It is about having no idea what to do, and or having no one with whom to do it. The former I called imagination. The latter I called community. To the extent that our community had imagination and community, we were not poor. But without imagination and community, no money could help us. I perceived that the role of the local church was to be a community of imagination. Living in that deprived community, I discovered the abundance of God. I love that phrase. The, the local church was to be a community of imagination. And I want to invite you this morning into this community of imagination as we look at the faithful presence of Christ and as we are faithfully present uh, to the least of these. The least of these are those who are in need. They don't know what to do, and they don't know who can help. And the role of the church is to be a community of imagination to them. So let's read uh, this morning's text. If it sounds familiar, uh, it was great because you're two for two in attendance uh, last week and this week. If it doesn't sound familiar, it shows that you weren't here last week or you fell asleep. Uh, but we are talking about Matthew chapter 25. Uh, 31 to 46. And uh, let me read the, our text for this morning. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and put the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the day of creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. 
I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil who and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This passage is at the end of Jesus' second sermon on the mount. Some of you will be acquainted with the first Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, which likely occurred on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. This Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 24 and 25, happens to be on the Mount of Olives. This is known as the Olivet Discourse. Today's passage is part of Jesus' response to his disciples', his disciples question, What sign will signal your return and end of the world? Jesus responds with wars and famine and earthquakes. Those will be the birth pains, the signs of his coming. And persecution will come and hatred towards his followers. And his, his followers will be put to death. And there will be false prophets. And sin will be rampant everywhere. And the good news will be preached throughout the whole world. And then more bad things will happen. Keep watch. The Lord is coming. Always be ready. Jesus acknowledges that only the Father knows the time of his return. For all those of you that are freaking out about the zombie apocalypse here, relax, we'll get to that. Jesus goes on, he tells four parables. The first parable, a servant who uh, takes care of his master's household while his master is away. He's rewarded for obeying the master's commands or... He's punished if the master returns and finds him beating up the other servants. The second parable, the ten bridesmaids. As they wait for the bridegroom, five of them are foolish. They didn't have oil for their lamps. And five of them are wives. They, wise. They always had oil ready for their, in their lamps. Some consider the, the oil being representative of the Holy Spirit. And the five foolish, when the, bri, when the bridegroom shows up, they try to borrow the, faith, borrow the oil of the five wise at the last minute when the bridegroom shows up. The five wise are, in, wise are invited into the marriage feast, and the five foolish are left outside in the dark. The third parable. Three servants are entrusted with their master's money. The first two invest it wisely, and the money doubles. The last one hides it. The master returns and rewards the two who have multiplied 
what the master gave them with more responsibility. The one who ended up playing it safe and hid what he was given is called useless and is sent out into the darkness. And then we come to today's text, the fourth apocalyptic parable. I'd suggest that the point of this parable is that judgment is based on what you do with Jesus. This parable is about Jesus, the Son of Man, or the King, the feed me, clothe me, invite me in. Judgment is based on our relationship with Jesus. I think it's worth noting uh, that uh, judgment was seen very differently in the first century. The topic was actually looked forward to, anticipated, excited people in Israel because they believed that God was a good and fair judge. For those who have been persecuted, for those who have been under oppression for centuries and had never been judged fairly, to be judged in a way that is right and having justice on their side was seen as a good thing. For the innocent who are oppressed, a fair judge will set them free. It's a wonderful thought. So if you're one of those people that's wondering why the church talks about judgment so much, in the context of the Bible, it was seen as a really positive, wonderful thing. Our culture doesn't deal nearly as well with the thought of judgment. We, become, we come across judgmental. We hear that. The reality is, is that the Bible is anticipating honest, fair judgment from a true, loving God. So, judgment will happen at the end of the age for all the nations. Those who cared and provided for the king are proclaimed righteous, and those who did not care and provide for the king shall be punished. Both sides seem to question, well, but when did we see you in need? Jesus responds, when you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The king was among the poor. We're going to look at a couple of different ways here. So when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, who are the least of these? Jesus describes these as hungry, thirsty, stranger, needing clothes, sick, in prison. The the quote that I said at at the beginning by Sam Wells would suggest that they are those who don't know what to do or who can help them. They are without a community of imagination. And in short, they're they're just people in need. Uh, Some would say that the least of these are the disciples of Jesus who are experiencing persecution. Based off of the needs of the disciples that the disciples would have in the order that this text was presented, could be understood that the nations... The others will be judged based off of how they receive the church amid the suffering. This fits well with Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the disciples without clothes, likely to be arrested. He says, whoever receives you receives me. That's one perspective. Others would suggest that the least are those, all those who are in need and that the point of this parable is to motivate faithful discipleship. That anyone in, around the world that is in need is the least. This, the, the second point is, is not to, doesn't perceive it to be a consoling, persecuted, or needy disciple. Those who are declared righteous are those who spend time among the poor. Jesus is among the poor. The church is where Jesus is. 
And those helping the needy are to be claimed, proclaimed righteous. David Fitch uh, presents a third option. Uh, David Fitch is the, is the author of the Faithful Presence book, which we get our, our, our theme from. Uh, and it's talking about how to be faithfully present in our world as Jesus is faithfully present in our lives. In the chapter on the discipline of being with the least of these, that's the topic that we are addressing in his uh, various different topics that he uh, touches on. He suggests uh, looking at three circles. The first uh, close circle is where Jesus is host. The second is the uh, half circle, the dotted circle, uh, where, he is, where we are the host. And the third is the half circle, where the world is the host and inviting people into their space. When it comes to those who are the least, Fitch provides this third perspective. That the presence of Jesus becomes manifest in the dynamic between the disciples, the you, as in you did it, and the least of these, my brothers. In fact, by Jesus referring to the hurting as brothers, he is emphasizing the relationship of kinship or family that takes place as Christians come alongside and are present with the poor. The declaration of who is righteous will be based on who was there in the presence of Christ. So in short, those will be ju- who will be declared righteous will be those who acknowledge the presence of Jesus while among the needy. Just being with the needy doesn't make you righteous. And if you're a disciple, there is a space where you should meet Jesus among the needy. As we look through Scripture, and Bruce did this more last week, we get more clarity on this. God loves those who are needy. And the reality is is that we are all needy. It's hard for us in the affluent West to really understand this, to identify with being the least. But we must recognize that all of us are at least spiritually needy. It is the grace of Jesus alone that can save us. Believers will be judged based on the Christ's work on the cross and not on our own human effort. Second part, you did it to me, Jesus, son of man, the king. In this parable, the king is in disguise. He is already among the least. He's gone undercover. Uh, If you've seen the TV show uh, Undercover Boss, uh, a CEO CEO goes undercover in their organization and finds out who's living the values of their their company out. The ones who are helping the company usually receive some sort of great reward, and those who are not are usually dismissed. This is a great modern parable for today's text. The disciples end up asking the question, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That's the question that Jesus is responding to. I call this an apocalyptic parable because the word apocalypse means an uncovering, an unveiling. So to help us with this, some think that of Jesus as being up there. That was a, a traditional Jewish thought. It's still present in our culture. He's up there in heaven. Somehow that means that he's a long way off from us, or at least it gets us thinking that way. He, he's up there somewhere. And he's coming back. So that means he's not here, so that he's up there. 
But that can make us think that Jesus has, has totally gone away. And these parables even support this image, the master coming back, the bridegroom, bridegroom coming back, a man on a journey coming back. And that is true. That's a, that's a biblical, good biblical image. But the reality is, is, is that he's far closer than we think. In some of the last words that Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Acts chapter 9, continue, one, cha- chapter 1, verse 9, continues this. And he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Jesus didn't just, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, boom, disappear, rise up to heaven, bye-bye. Doesn't quite make sense. I am with you always to the very end of the age. The image of Jesus rising into heaven is accurate. We know that the disciples stood around looking up into the sky. But I'd like to suggest another image uh, that's more accurate in in this context. It may help us uh, get a bit of an understanding of of where Jesus was in the least of these. And that is simply that he went behind a veil. He's gone from sight. But he stayed very close. Just covered. Just veiled. I'm still close. I'm still close. You just can't see me. It's more like peekaboo. This morning, Beth, Beth, my youngest daughter, climbed into bed and she pulled the covers over her eyes and she's right there. And yet we play with, with kids, peekaboo, instead of bye-bye, I'm gone. He's hidden, but he's close. In the end times, we'll be able to see him plainly again. The veil will be uncovered. It will be removed. Hence, we have the title, The Revelation of John, where we get a glimpse at the presence of Christ returning. The veil has been removed. The cover has been pulled off. If you've ever been hunting with someone who has trained their eyes to see deer. They see them everywhere. Driving down the highway with someone, and they just, oh yeah, there's a deer, there's a deer, there's a deer, and they're in the the ditch, they're they're somewhere, and those people can see them so well, even though the deer are totally camouflaged. And I think it's similar with Jesus. We need to train ourselves to see Jesus in the midst of our daily lives. In this parable about the least of these, Jesus seems to be saying, that the king is gone undercover. He's camouflaged. He's present, but he's veiled. From this parable, he tells us where he is. He tells us how to see him. He is among the poor, the naked, the lonely, the needy. Another way to say it is that it's easier to see Jesus when we're there. The cloud is less foggy. The veil is a bit thinner. The cover is more transparent. Mother Teresa would agree with this uh, view. When she's asked about the poor, she said, each one of them is Jesus in disguise. And as our lives uh, get busier, and we intentionally drift off into, into thinking that Jesus is gone far away, 
I think that feeds into a perspective that relationships, that people, end up becoming programs. We end up forgetting how the master treated his servants, or the need for oil when the bridegroom is back. Bruce talked about this last week. And often in the midst of our busyness, of our daily lives, we stop looking for Jesus. We stop thinking and we stop acting like Jesus. And slowly we assume he's not there. He's not here. He's up there, gone. And we stop thinking about Jesus being close. Slowly we stop building relationships, and instead we just give money. And we need to be cautious here. Giving money without any desire for relationship can become a way to cover our own relational emptiness that we feel as Christ has diminished from our sight. I don't want people to hear that giving money is bad. Uh, Many are gifted with generosity. I simply want to encourage us to strive for relationship with the individuals or organizations that you're giving to. As you engage in relationship, think of Jesus' presence being closer than you may think. So instead of just giving money to a panhandler and walking right by, stop. Talk to him. Instead of just giving money to an organization, get to know a little bit about it. Go and serve with them. Pray for them. Building Leaders for Peace. Watch their video. There's a link to it on our website. The point here is that realizing that Jesus is present as the church engages the needy. It's relational. It takes time. And we need to prioritize our time towards those who are needy. Bruce mentioned it already that we're making a bit of a subtle shift uh, from what we're, we used to call an Advent giving project. We're calling our Faithful Presence Initiative. We want to highlight the presence of one another's lives instead of a project. We, don't, we want to do this year-round, not just at Advent. We want to highlight more relationship instead of uh, just financial giving. And yes, there's still projects to give towards. That's the, the top down. Uh, Advent is a great time to be financially generous. But we want you to build presence, being relational presence all year more than just at Advent, so that you can engage in the buckets of hope in January. You can participate in building leaders for peace this summer. You can welcome refugees whenever they end up arriving. So as I think about uh, the least of these, I end up feeling a real sense of inadequacy, that I just haven't done enough. I don't even know someone who is the least. As I thought about this, I realized that when we get to know the poor, the hungry, the sick, we start to see them as friends. And we don't see them as the least of these anymore. We engage in a relationship with the least when they become, as we engage in a relationship with the least, they become people with a name. They become friends. And we recognize that the presence of Christ is among us. This is similar to the words of Jesus when he says, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I now call you friends. I know one woman who has uh, serious mental and and physical disabilities. Uh, She has a very strong, obsessive-compulsive behavior. Uh, She speaks only a couple words in each sentence, and for the past 10 years, she's lived in a group home with four other women who also require full-time care for their personal needs. Uh, But I don't think of her as the least of these. I I think of her as Jill. Uh, Jill's my sister. She's been my sister for 37 years. She lives in Chilliwack. 
I grew up in the same house as her with the same parents. And it's tough uh, growing up with a seriously disabled sister. There are lots of awkward moments uh, at home when we'd go in public. Uh, I found it interesting how people responded to her. Some people were so extremely warm that they just made us all feel safe and welcome. And it was a, a wonderful thing uh, when we encountered some of those people, especially when I was an awkward teenager and had to be with my disabled sister. And I was still trying to work through some of that. I remember another situation uh, as an older elementary aged boy. Uh, one person approached my mom and me and my sister in the Safeway parking lot, and he started telling her it was because of her sinfulness that, was, that my sister was that way. That wasn't helpful. That wasn't engaging the least at all. My point here is that we have, when we have a relationship with the least of these, we can often forget that they're the least. They become friends. So if you're someone who's sitting here in, today and you're trying to think through, you're struggling to identify who is the least, I'd like to suggest that that's a really good thing. Because I assume that we all have someone in our life that actually is the least. It's just really hard to identify them because we're friends, because we're family, because we know them. We've built that relationship. It's kind of counterintuitive here, but I think that it's better to not be able to identify the least. Rather than being someone who's sitting there going, well, that person I don't know is the least, and that person that's the least, they're the least. When we see people as the least, we need to step into that space. And we need to allow Christ to show us that they're our friends. One person who did this, uh, was her name was Rebecca. Uh, my parents needed to get away, and uh, Rebecca would invite Jill to come and stay with her. She was amazing. I thought that it was a relatively easy thing but she was definitely part of our community of imagination. She brought Jill into her home for the weekend. I thought that would be a rather easy thing, but she had to adjust her schedule, her routine, her sleeping arrangements, her diet, her transportation, all for the sake of Jill and, and my, my parents. As a result, my parents had time and, and place where they could, they could get away and they had adequate care. I want to introduce you to a couple other friends uh, that could use a community of imagination. My first friend... His name's Ira. He is sitting somewhere over there. Yes, Ira, you're there? Thanks, man. He's over there. Uh, where's my notes here? Uh, Ira expressed his need to me the other day um, for a home. Uh, he wants to, wants to have a place where he can live. Uh, Ira's voice doesn't work super well, so I want to be a voice for Ira and as broad of audience as possible, and this seems like a good place. So I'd like to read you a little bit of Ira's story. Hi, my name is Ira Earhart. I'm a 37-year-old male looking for a caregiver and a place to live. On August 28, 2014, I sustained and acquired a brain injury due to a methanol overdose. I attended a party where I was poisoned. Someone slipped uh, something into his drink. I was in ICU for a month and rehab for three months. Due to, the, due to the brain injury, I have difficulties with speech and movement, and I am now considered legally blind. I use a walker outside the house and a wheelchair when I'm in the crowd. I have an iPad to help me with complex communication and I use access transit to get around the community. A bit about me. I enjoy a good, strong coffee. That is number one. I like to watch movies, listening to music, fitness, and working out at the gym, and driving my power scooter. I have a great sense of humor, and, and prior to my injury, I worked as a stonemason. I attend uh, weekly programs at Sarbi uh, in Bridging the Gap. Since my injury, I have been living at home with my parents, but I'm ready to uh, have my own space 
and independence outside of their home. The support I'd be looking for uh, in a caregiver is someone to book my access transit trips each month, call in and pick up my medication, cook meals. I'd require three lunches per week, uh, suppers at each day. I require assistance cutting meat at meals, but I'm able to make my own breakfast and simple lunches. I don't require 24-7 care. I can be left alone for periods of time up to a week. I can do my own laundry, but need help folding clothes. I'm independent with self-care and grooming and bathing. I'm financially supported by said. I'd love to meet and chat further with any individuals interested in being my caregiver. There's a need. We can be a community of imagination and, uh, and surround Ira here. If you want more information about that, uh, please just come and contact uh, me. I got another friend, Lynn. Come on up here, man. I told Lynn that if it was 11.15, he wouldn't get a chance to come up. But this is Lynn Chadowitz. Uh, Lynn, give me uh, the one-minute version of uh, the least of these in your world. Okay. Well, I think we're working in the child welfare system here in Saskatoon, and we've kind of come across two crises that we didn't know about. The first is every day in this city, we have families that hit a crisis, and things become unsafe in the home, and the children need to get out, and they need somewhere to go. There's children with nowhere to go. That's happening every day, and actually that number continues to increase every month here in the city. Then we came across a second crisis. So our primary response to those, that first crisis as a, as a city and as a society is foster care. Foster parents that receive those children to give them a safe home to live in for a little while and are a support to the birth parents. But in this province, we've lost a third of those foster families over the last few years. They've just stopped. So what that means is we have kids, some of the most vulnerable kids in our city that end up in hotels, that are left in hospitals, babies being left in hospitals, and other kids just being put into group homes. So they're super vulnerable. These are the least of these that we've discovered here. Awesome. Thanks, man. Uh, Lynn has told me that there's 5,000 in foster care system, 500 homes. That's a 1 to 10 ratio. Lynn, what was the quick number? One, sun, one day in summer, there was how many people? 24 kids that got that apprehended and needed a, no, nowhere to go. Now, we, the, the church's response, what I love about what Lynn is doing, is there are people that are, are, are we need more foster parents in, in, in Saskatchewan, definitely. But what Lynn is also doing is he's building relationships between the church and foster parents to support those so that that one-third amount diminishes, so that the parents that are, are, are fostering have some support and care, because it's hard. It's a lot of hard work. If you want more information, uh, there's Lynn. We want to be a community of imagination uh, around uh, that issue as well. Uh, on a macro, so those are a couple of bottom-up. That's why I bring those situations here to, to us. Those are the bottom-up that we were talking about. Here's the, the projects in our Faithful uh, Presence Initiative. Those are the top. Why am I talking through two mics? Do you guys know which one I'm doing? <laughs> you guys got me? There you go. I got one right here. This is great. Uh, so the ones that I'm bringing are kind of that bottom-up. The, the other ones are the top-down, the, the, the projects that we're setting, looking at corporately as, as a church. Uh, they're all important, but we want to inspire and, and ask people, get involved uh, with the least of these. Uh, on a macro level, Franklin Graham did a great job of being a community of imagination to the least of these children from around the world. That's the shoeboxes that we have uh, in front of you, and our kids are going to come back in as we uh, show a video here um, about it. 